Hello, plantpreneurs, and welcome to series two of the Plant-Based Business Podcast, brought to you by Vivolution. In this show, we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business. I am Judy Nadell, and I'm here today with my co-host, Damien Clarkson. Each week on this show, we speak to a range of entrepreneurs and investors who are passionate about creating positive plant power change in the world. Today we are joined by vegan business OG, our friend Seth Tibbet, founder and chairman of Tofurky. Today, Tofurky is known across the globe as a pioneering plant-based brand, but it wasn't always that way. In fact, for many years, Seth was in the business wilderness and he actually lived in a treehouse for many years at the beginning of his company. Seth's overnight business success story took 15 years of struggle and many times he nearly walked away, but Tempeh kept putting him back in and eventually the world caught up with his visionary idea of a fermented food revolution. In this episode, we touch on so many good things, including resilience as a vegan superpower, B Corps and business for good, the origins of Tofurky, what was the turning point where success started to happen for Seth? the future of the plant-based economy. It was our real pleasure to have Seth on the show and we know you will love this episode. Hey Seth. Hey. How's it going? Uh, going good over here. It's morning here and evening over there. So you're in the future. You're living in the future. <laughs> um, firstly, how are you doing in these strange times? Doing good. Um, I've been uh, working from home and laying low up here. I live in a very rural part of the United States of, on the Cascade Mountains of Washington State, which is on the West Coast. It's the part where no Brits ever come. You guys always go to New York City and Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> we miss out on the good stuff. But this is the most beautiful part of the U.S. And, uh, you know, I'm, since I'm rural, I'm going out every day and working but it's been really uh, satisfying, actually, strangely satisfying, staying at home. I'm, and Tofurky has been running very uh, busy, and uh, we've had to redo all of our production lines so that people are at social distance and reschedule everybody's breaks so there's not more than 10 people at a time in our break room so everybody can be home. We've raised our pay rate because a lot of people have uh, partners that lost their jobs and everybody has a lot of kids at home. So it's been a real, you know, adjustment trying to A, make all of these big orders happen and then B, um, you know, also at the same time um, protecting our employees. So it's a wild time though. Wow. Yeah, it is such a wild time. It's amazing that you're doing that though for your staff, that you're able to kind of increase their rate. And that's that's such a lovely thing. So I don't think there's many companies who, who've been able to do that. So I think it's lovely. Yeah, you know, um, we're uh, what's called a B Corp, which is a social responsibility corp. Uh, and so it really is a good way to just hold our own selves accountable for, you know, taking into account employee needs along with you know all the economic and other needs that a business has so um that's been really good very cool so this this podcast is all about helping entrepreneurs grow and sort of create a thriving plant-based business and this is something you've been doing for 40 odd years but taking it back a bit can you tell us like where you grew up and were you always interested in entrepreneurship you know, I, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area on the East Coast of the U.S. And um, never, you know, my parents were government employees 
And so there really wasn't a history of entrepreneurship in our company. And we did, you know, as boys have little paper routes and we would do little business scams, you know, we'd have carnivals for the neighbor kids and everything. And we'd make putt-putt golf courses out of rain gutters and stuff. So, you know, I guess that was the first introduction to entrepreneurship. But when I got to university in Ohio, about halfway through, I kind of stopped ordering off their menu and branched out and just started doing my own sort of independent studies. And one of these things was a uh, what we called a free school. It was a drop-in center. Uh, at, at a professor of mine had a big house down in the very poor neighborhood of town. And I got some friends together and we started a, a after-school drop-in center where we'd you know, help kids with homework or do craft projects, take them to the park. At one point, I had 27 kids in a Volkswagen van of mine that I drove to the nearby park, which don't try that at home. <laughs> don't try that any time after 1972. But uh, <laughs> it was, you know, a lot of these kids, their parents worked and they were kind of on their own after school. So that was like, really, I was like, oh, cool, you know, you can start something and you can do something positive in the world. I ended up dropping out of college for a while because of some, uh, I was trying to be an elementary school teacher. And back then, they were still hitting kids in classrooms. I don't know if they do that in the, did they ever do that in the UK? Yeah, they used to cane kids with rulers and big sticks. Yeah, my dad said that he, he was caned, yeah. But not you guys. You were never king. Uh, no, no we're, we were born in the 80s, so we just about um, <laughs> that. dodged that, yeah. They were uh, still doing what we call corporal punishment there in the uh, schools, and they put me in a student teaching situation with a woman that was, you know, using ruler and cane or whatever to hit the kids, and I was like, I'm not going to sit here and learn from her, and I went to my advisor, and they said, well that's what you've got, like love it or leave it. And I was like, I am out of here. So I ended up uh, being a teacher naturalist in a more progressive situation that was great where they loved kids and the outdoors. And so I, I learned the natural history trade and became a teacher naturalist there and uh, had like an eight year career after college. In 1980, I had already fallen in love with tempeh because I had become a vegetarian in 1972. And then uh, a couple years later, I was exposed to the writings of Stephen Gaskin, who was the spiritual guru. And he had a farm down in Tennessee. It was the biggest commune in America. And there were 1,200 hippies in living on 1,600 acres. And they were all what they called pure vegetarians for like spiritual reasons. Uh, they smoked a lot of pot, but they were, you know, really involved in the world and they were good to their neighbors and the neighbors liked them. And they had this cookbook, the farm vegetarian cookbook. And I had found this uh, recipe for soy burgers that were soy grits, which are just ground up little bits of 
dried raw soybeans. And I would take these grits and I would mold them into a burger shape and I'd fry them up in a pan. And I mean, soybeans, if you don't really cook them or soak them and everything, not so digestible. And so <laughs> they didn't taste that great, but they digested worse. And so it was a real struggle there. But then I read about tempeh and they had discovered uh, how to make tempeh there on the farm. And so one summer I had a job in Tennessee near their farm and I drove over there and I got the lowdown because I was very interested. I was like, what a product, a, a tempeh, a soy product that tastes good and you can digest it in your body. This is crazy. <laughs> And what a concept. So I got the starter and I went back to my tent, which I was living in at the time. And I whipped up a batch of tempeh and, oh my God, you know, I mean, I made it out in a field because tempeh is from Indonesia where it's about 32 degrees Celsius all the time. And that was the temperature of Tennessee. So this beautiful white cake of mold grew over these soybeans. And I knew it looked good because I had read the literature and I was excited, but my fellow staff members weren't so excited, you know, to see this big cake of moldy soybeans come in and I was so excited, but they had been drinking beer all afternoon, so their defenses were down a little bit and we had this wonderful uh, tempeh meal with sweet corn and okra and tomatoes, I mean tomatoes, excuse me, and... <laughs> It was really uh, just uh, the angels saying, and I was so impressed with tempeh. So that was my uh, turning point, you know. So I said, well, maybe give my hand a business. So that's when I started making tempeh because uh, nobody was doing that in Portland, Oregon at the time. And I thought, I'll give it a go. Love that. A good place to do a business like that. Uh, hippie central, more or less, of of the US, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And vegan central of the US. And even back then, Portland was ahead of its time. Yeah. And we read that you founded Tofurky on $2,500. And to save money, you built and lived in a treehouse for seven years. And I love that. And we've seen pictures of your treehouse. And we're just like, it's just incredible. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about like the early days of when you founded Turtle Island Foods in Tofurky? And what inspired you to create the company? Yeah, right. Well, you've got your homework, right? I called the first name of the business Turtle Island Soy Dairy. I came back from Alaska and I had saved up $7,000, I decided I'm going to go into the tempeh business. So I took 2,500 bucks of that and I bought a bunch of pots and pans. And then that I, I did this on December 1, 1980. I, I registered with the Secretary of State of Oregon and became a business. And I was like blown away because I hated business. You know, in college, we used to laugh at all the business guys because back then during like the Vietnam War, business meant the status quo. It wasn't the hotbed of, you know, revolution and social change. It was the generals, General Motors, General Electric, you know, um, General Foods. And it was all the madmen kind of people. It wasn't like anything what it is today. So I was really feeling like, whoa, I, I know nothing about this business. I mean, I knew nothing, really nothing. 
And But I was excited, and I went to my aunt's house that Christmas in Minnesota, which is more conservative than uh, Portland, and I was telling her about, I'm going into business, and I'm going to make moldy soybeans. <laughs> and she just stopped me right there, and she said, Seth, Seth, wait, this is a bad idea. This is a horrible idea. And this is a meat-centric country. It's always going to be a meat-eating country. And nobody wants to eat soybeans, let alone moldy ones. So please stop this. And so I was like, oh, thanks for the encouragement, Rosie. I appreciate that. But <laughs> I went back and uh, started making tempeh in this uh, local natural foods co-op where I shopped. And they rented me their kitchen for $25 a month. And uh, I would go in there at four o'clock in the afternoon when they had finished using it. And I had all night to make a hundred, uh, well, let me put it in kilos, 40 kilos of tempeh uh, in a night. And so that's what I would do. I'd come in there at four, I'd drag out my tempeh making equipment and I'd put the tempeh in and then I'd go home about midnight at one o'clock and I'd sleep. And the next day I'd wake up and I'd go, harvest the tempeh. And then I would drive it all around Portland. I had a three-door Datsun station wagon as my delivery vehicle um, that had been crushed in an accident. It was I bought it for $350 and one of the, the driver's side door was missing because that had been where the something large and fast had hit this <laughs> car. And so I'd drive there with one door missing and I was so embarrassed, I would drive, I would park around the corner from the natural food store because I didn't want them to see what a terrible car I had. But the natural food stores weren't that great either. I mean, they were all like dark and wooden warp boards with second hand equipment and everything. So, uh, but they were just starting up and Portland had several of them in restaurants. So I started doing that and after a couple months, I got a call from a wholesaler who was like, we want 400 kilos a week. And I was like, whoa, I don't know if I can do that. So I started looking for a place. And after six months, I was about to give up. And I um, looked in the window of an old abandoned schoolhouse uh, about an hour and a half east of Portland, Oregon, and I convinced the local school board to rent the building out to me for $150 a month, which was also very cheap because it had a commercial kitchen, had four classrooms, and a full gymnasium where I could go practice my free throw shooting and basketball skills. So uh, I stayed in that school for, um, yeah, seven and nine years, just slowly building up. There was no heat in the building and the water was all frozen. So I had to do a lot of renovation, but uh, eventually it was like a perfect place for me. And during that time, um, from 1980 to 1989, I was making tempeh in the school, no tofurkey yet, and I was living on $300 a month. That was my take-home pay. My take-home pay for the first nine years was $31,000. Uh, 
Um, I don't know what that is in pounds today. <laughs> pretty similar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty similar. That's right. Uh, so anyways, I that's when I, I built my treehouse because I needed a cheap place to live, but I had to be a warm place to live. So I built, uh, I rented three trees for 25 bucks a month from a neighbor and I um, built this tree house. And the deal was when I moved out, it became the neighbor's property, uh, but I could live there for as long as I needed with 25 bucks a month. So I spent a thousand or uh, $2,000 over nine years building this tree house. And it was a great place to live. And, uh, you know, I was up there with the squirrels. I was on a like a, a rounds of a flying squirrel, like for a long time at two in the morning, this squirrel would swoop down from the trees. He'd land on the tree house and he'd come up into my window and he'd like poke his little head up there in the window. And it would just be, you know, he was checking in on me and seeing if I was okay. And I was like, yes, I am okay. This is pretty good. Oh, I love that. Did you have electric in the treehouse? I had electricity. I had a wood stove. I had a small little camper uh, propane stove. I had all the comforts of home. I even had a telephone with, a, you know, one of those old, maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's like they put the phone on the wall with a cord and you had to dial, you know, I mean... It wasn't like in your pocket, and it was a party line, so you'd have to share the phone with a neighbor. Which was a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, right. It was great living in the tree, and I sold tempeh to the famous... Have you heard of the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? I, um, well, we saw yeah, a documentary yeah, was, on Netflix. Yeah. Did you see that, The Wild Wild Country? So I sold tempeh to those guys. They came into town looking for me, and... Uh, they said they needed like, um, what would it be, like a thousand kilos of uh, tempeh for this big guru festival that they were going to have in July. And so I was like, sure, I can make that. So I made them tempeh for that. And Question is, Seth, did you go to the festival? I did go to the festival, of course. That was the whole thing, you know, is I wanted to see what was happening on the inside because everybody was talking about these guys, you know, and there was all these rumors. So I would go there and deliver tempeh. I went back several other times, but that festival was 10,000 people ate this tempeh meal, which I still think is probably the biggest tempeh meal in the U.S. history. <laughs> I mean, and they had a big temporary kitchen that they'd built with 20 woks and they were stir frying this. I made a lovely stir fry with sweet and sour tempeh. And then we all went out to the road where the Bhagwan would drive his one of his 93 Rolls Royces. Who needs 93 Rolls Royces? I mean, I crazy. that's so different. Like the farm, my other commune, they were living on nuts and berries and, you know, no money. They were just all in it to save the world and do good things. And these guys were buying 93 Rolls Royces. Hey Plantpreneurs, Damien here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something super important we need to discuss with you. 
So it's been incredible to receive so many messages from so many of you since we started this podcast. We love hearing about how this podcast is inspiring you and helping you on your business journey. And we create this podcast to help you, the plant-based businesses. We want to help you get more exposure and facilitate sharing of knowledge and ideas about how we grow this movement. And we really love creating this podcast for you. And this is why we need to be honest with you right now. The truth is that we need your help. Before COVID-19 struck, we had multiple companies find to sponsor the series of the podcast. But then overnight, all the sponsors vanished with the outbreak of COVID-19. And we have big plans to reinvest this money into the podcast to drive the growth of the show. As the more people listen to the show, it means the more knowledge we can share, the more exposure we can give our guests, and the faster we can collectively disrupt outdated industries around the world. Today, we've invested thousands of pounds from Feevolution in creating this podcast. And to keep the show going without support simply isn't sustainable. So we've come up with a creative solution we think you will love. We've created a Patreon for the plant-based business community. Patreon is a community for creators to gain financial support for their work. And in joining our Patreon, you'll be part of the community of entrepreneurs and investors creating the next generation of plant-based businesses. So you can support us from as little as £5 a month and this will help us to keep the show going and you'll benefit from all the community and content we'll be releasing exclusively to the Patreon community. And we even have an option for those of you who are feeling extra generous in your support of our mission to accelerate the growth of the plant-based economy around the world. Join today by simply visiting www.patreon.com slash plantbasedbusiness and sign up to support the show. Now let's get back into the episode and we'll see you over on Patreon. So when was it that Tofurky came about and it really started to go from you kind of making tempeh on your own to lots of independent shops? When did it start becoming the business that people might recognize today? Yeah, after nine and ten years of making tempeh and living on very little money and never making any profit, I was thinking I'm not really much of a businessman, so maybe I ought to get out of business. So I was looking for a way out, and I was kind of, uh, I thought, at the end of this dream. And my idea was I was going to write a book about treehouses. So I started writing this book about treehouses, and I was going and traveling because I had met other, you know, you have a treehouse, and you start hearing from other treehouse owners. So I was trying to do that, and I wrote up a big proposal to a publisher, and I got universally rejected, <laughs> which which I thought was crazy because I thought it was such a great idea. I was sure this was my way out. But anyways, when it was rejected, I was like, well, hello, Tempe. I guess I'm back to that Tempe. I got to make this work somehow, which seemed like a really poor bet at that time because I had been doing it for 10 years, and I wasn't getting anywhere. But it still was growing, so I felt good about the mission was still alive. So I had gone to a friend of mine's um, business in Portland to deliver tempeh. And he was making, this is my friend Hans Robel of The Higher Taste, and he was making this stuffed tofu roast right about uh, before Thanksgiving. I was like, Hans, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm going to sell, you know, 25 of these to my prime customers and they'll pay me $50 for this stuffed tofu roast and a little tub of gravy. And I was like, whoa, really? But I bought one and I thought, wow, this is pretty good. And went to him and said, let's go into business. And I had remembered 
back in 1981 when I was delivering in my little three-door Datsun wagon Tempe, uh, there was this product called a Tofurky sandwich, T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y, that I would eat, you know, on my, while I was making my deliveries. And then I, so I always liked that name. And then I called up the company that was still in business, but there had been no Tofurky sandwiches since 1982 or three. I said, hey, are you, you know, is that your name? I mean, can I use that? Ah, oh, we don't care about that name. It's a stupid name. Never went anywhere. So it's like, great. <laughs> I love stupid use. names. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stupid and I like stupid names. So let's go. And, you know, part of it to me was too, everybody said, uh, like Hans was calling his like stuffed tofu roast or something. And everybody was like, yeah, tofurkey is a bad name, but uh, that's too silly and you know, wah, wah, wah. But I had been trying to be like this straight business guy for 15 years and I had gotten zero traction with it and no profit. So I decided that, you know, let's have some fun. Let's see what fun. I mean, I'm, I like fun. Maybe everybody likes fun. So anyways, we went into um, business that year and I was buying these uh, roasts and gravy from Hans. And then we had, my wife had been working on these tempeh burgers that really didn't taste like a burger. They tasted like Thanksgiving. So I was like, oh, we'll just cut them out into a drumstick shape. So we'd stamp them out uh, into drumsticks. So that first year in 1995, we had uh, a tofurkey roast, which was five pounds of product and it was like a three pound tofu roast. It was gravy and it was eight of these tempeh drum sticks. We didn't know what tofurkeys looked like in the wild, but we knew they had eight legs because there was eight <laughs> drumettes out there. And so we uh, sold those in the store for like thirty four ninety five, I think. And we sold uh, 818 over the whole uh, Thanksgiving, but we put a little postcard with a stamp on it in every one of the boxes and just asked questions about how people liked it because this was bef when the internet was still getting started. I think about 30% of America had computers in their home. And the way you got in touch with companies was you either called them or you um, actually sent them a letter. And so we started getting all these postcards back and people were like, oh my God, this is so great. I've been waiting 20 years for this product. I'm not a second class citizen anymore, you know? And so we thought, wow, we've really hit on something there, but it was, you know, a hard sell to the fancy stores who said, oh, this is just a, a niche and there's no real power to this niche, but we knew otherwise. And, um, you know, we, we kept on it there, but we also got a lot of good publicity and press, which we had never really gotten a lot of. We'd gotten some as a tempe company. So from the get-go, it was pretty clear that Tofurky was going to be a product that was going to change our lives. And it was just this moment for me where, you know, like the Greeks have two words for time. They have Kronos and Kairos, and Kronos is chronological time, and Kairos is this magical moment where of time where just all time kind of stops, and you look, 
and you go, finally, I can see my way through, you know, this is like a, a magic moment. And that's what it was really for me. It was like this Kairos moment where I could see the progression of how we could, you know, go forward and maybe even make some money finally <laughs> for my 18 year overnight success story. I love that. And I think like your resilience of kind of, you know, kind of trying for, you know, 10, 15 years before you finally had that turning point. I think the resilience is just incredible because I think, you know, especially now, I think, you know, things are so fast moving that if people haven't kind of, you know, got somewhere, say in three, five years, they're kind of thinking, you know, it's a failure or like, let's move on to something else. And I think if you really believe in what you're doing, having that resilience to stick with it and to kind of like, you know, see that have that belief and know that people will slowly come to you it's almost like you were the visionary and people were just you know you were too ahead of your time so you had to wait for people to catch up with you I think it's amazing yeah that's well said Judy um, because you know I, I do think that that is the superpower of all vegan entrepreneurs though is that because I have yet to meet a vegan entrepreneur and that's everything from the small little uh, entrepreneur selling uh, tempeh at the farmer's market all the way up to the Beyond Burger, you know, Ethan Brown and Patrick Brown and Possible Burger, all those Wall Street kind of guys. They have a v- uh, mission too. Like everybody that's in this vegan business has some kind of purpose other than money. And that keeps you going when the money's not there and, uh, you know, the longer you stay in the game, the less stupid you become and the more you are likely to find a way to pivot onto something and succeed. In my case, it was pivoting from tempeh to tofu. But uh, I think that that's a really important point there is that the mission Mission-based businesses are more likely to succeed than non-mission-based businesses. I knew so little about business when I first started in 1981, and one of the managers at the Hope Co-op was trying to teach me about margin and markup, and I was like, I don't know about this stuff. And he said, maybe you should go to this free seminar that the government, the federal government puts on in Portland. And I was like, free, that's a price I could afford. I'll go and take a business (laughs) class. That was going to be my first business class. So I went into this room and there was like a hundred entrepreneurs in this carpeted room and this big guy comes out and he's got like a suit and a tie and he's got rings on his meaty fingers. And he's like, I'm like, oh, this is a business guy. He's going to teach us. And he starts out and he goes, how many of you people are out there to save the world? And I was like, yes, that's me. And my <laughs> hand goes up and I'm like looking around the room and I go, oh, I'm the only hand that went up here. <laughs> and then he goes, I thought so. How many of you are here to make money? And everybody goes, woohoo. The room goes crazy. And I'm like, good God, I'm only in business class five minutes and I'm already flunking out. But... <laughs> You know, at the same time, I realize, you know, I I think back and I go, did I, you know, in fact, flunk? I mean, or did these other guys flunk or did nobody get it right? Because maybe you should have raised your hands for both. So I don't think anybody got it right that day. But um, mission, very important for vegan businesses to remember why you're in business more than just money. 
Definitely. Yeah, and it's it's like that unison of the money world coming to the ethical world. You know, if we can right. match that up and find a great like partnership, it's it's going to allow us, like you said, people like you, if you had the access in 1985, 1980 to the, the you know, the, the, the Blue Horizons or the New Crop Capitals, these kind of people, you know, <laughs> you could have grown it quicker right. and the awareness you would have created would have been even faster. Just taking it back a little bit. So I just want to know how you, when you started to scale up Tofurky was created and you had the successes. How did you then start scaling up across the US? Because it, I guess it all happened quite quickly. When Tofurky first started, um, we were all set up for making tempeh. And so what we did for Tofurky, which at that point was really just a two month product, you know, it would sell in November and December. But the rest of the year, we were just making tempeh uh, still because the product was still very expensive and it wasn't an everyday product. And so what we did was we had uh, a co-packer that would make it. We went through a couple of different recipes and a couple of different co-packers. And that's a really great way to scale up because we did that for uh, the first, I think, four years of Tofurky. And so we didn't have to invest anything. I mean, we felt like this was going to take off, but we really hadn't proved the concept yet. So there was low risk to us just buying the product from co-packers. And after, in right about 1999, we realized we, you know, at that point we were paying so much money in shipping. It was being made for us down in California and it was just a headache bringing product up and if the roads got icy that would slow the whole process down so we said we've got to start making this ourselves so we uh, actually bought this recipe uh, and we brought it in-house and that was when we really started to become uh, profitable you know because at first we were just we weren't really focused on I mean, we were making a little money on the on the tofurkey, but we still were overall losing money. But when we took over the the manufacturing and we had the manufacturing margin and the marketing margin both, that was really what we did it. And then we just kind of uh, in, reinvested all of the the money that we were making and uh, leased equipment and did everything we could to bring in the the stuff we needed. So it was just a, a real um, gradual uh, scale up. What's your advice for, you know, the young entrepreneurs listening to this podcast who maybe want to be the next Tofurky and they want to get listed in supermarkets or Whole Foods? Like, have you got one golden tip you'll share with, share with them? Well, you know, uh, you just have to keep swimming every day, you know, every day that you turn the key and uh, that you're in business, you become less stupid. I mean, that's all that, like there's all, you know, I wrote this book and there's all these books that tell you how to be smart. This is all, but my journey was all about working very hard, living on very little and just trying to be less stupid every day, every month after every failure, because um, that's really what it is. You know, when you, when you start a business, you have all these ideas, but you're at your most stupid part, you know, too. And then as you go along, you, you get smarter, you, you shed off stupidity. So I think 
it's really just having common sense and developing business sense. But the longer you stay in business, the the more you have likelihood of succeeding. And as we've mentioned before, having the superpower of mission and as well as money can keep you in business till you have your breakthrough Tofurky moment or your pivot. So I think that, you know, I don't know that that's really sexy advice, but it's really the long haul of just staying with it and paying attention. And, you know, when things aren't working, trying something else and learning from, you know, your failures. That's great advice. Such good advice. And you recently released your memoir in search of the wild tofurkey. Congratulations. Yeah. And you reached number one on Amazon's green books, didn't you as well? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, the uh, green, yeah. New releases in the green business category. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So great. What inspired you to write the book and what can readers expect from it? I did want to tell, you know, the Tofurky story, because looking back 41 years, when I do look back, I see that it, the Tofurky story is sort of a, a strange outlier of a story. There was just so many good stories, and it actually gave me a time to reflect and to go back and actually thank a lot of the people that, you know, because I... Uh, being the stupid business guy, you know, I had so much help and so much generosity. You know, you think of business as this cutthroat world, but there's also a lot of generosity, everything from employees who worked so hard, uh, a lot of them before you even had, you know, any kind of money or, you know, benefits and that helped move things forward. You know, just random people that like, you know, there was uh, the local post masters in my town when she saw how hard I was working and that I wasn't exactly the next Bill Gates she said would you like to live in this apartment for free you know Um, and I was like what you know I mean I was living in a little camping trailer that smelled like mouse urine at that time and she (laughs) taking cold showers in the school And she was so nice to me, you know, to give me this warm place with a shower and everything. It was like two minute walk from the tempeh plant. So going back and thanking people, but telling these stories just as entertainment, but also trying to encourage uh, entrepreneurs to um, stick with it. And maybe some of my not make some of the mistakes I made. It's been a, a joy really to reflect on it and write it and you know, a lot of the people at Tofurky are like, oh, my God, like, how did we ever make it this far? And so it's just f- funny for them to hopefully there's some kernels of inspiration somewhere in there. We we can't wait to read it. We tried to get a copy, but it was sold out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to. Oh, so gonna, yeah. so maybe you might have to send us a copy. <laughs> we're, very, we're very excited about it. UK Amazon has them now. They're, they're people that are getting them. Uh, oh really? We had a look and it said sold out. I'll have another look though. It's selling out yeah. as you yeah. speak. <laughs> sold out means that they didn't uh, order enough. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really exciting, and I'm I'm really happy for you that you've got to write this book. And I think you know you got to eventually publish your book and get a bit of the treehouse story in there as well. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, we've been going for quite some time. I think this may be one of our longest podcasts, but we still have. 
a quick fire round to go through. So um, try and answer these questions as quickly as possible. And the first one is, why do you get up in the morning? I get up in the morning just to be part of big love of you know the universe and of all people. I mean, way too short not to love everybody, way too long to hate this life. So Love that. Love that. What problem are you trying to solve with your business? We're trying to stay relevant in this supercharged category as an independent family-owned company. What one resource or factors had the biggest impact on your business over the years? I think the timing, um, being in the space early was uh, actually an advantage than when we survived and, uh, you know, just keeping going over the long haul has really helped crystallize us as a trailblazing brand. And uh, so it's really just the longevity of being in business for so long. Right. What are your top three books or podcasts you'd recommend to entrepreneurs? How I Built This would be podcast. Eating Animals would be the book. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say your podcast because I'm on right now. How about that? <laughs> and we'll say your book. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, I forgot my book. Yeah, my book. Scratch Jonathan Saffron Sayer. This is way better. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your business? I think that when I started the business, I probably should have looked more in, instead of having everything tempe, I should have looked at developing tofu-based products earlier because tofu was more um, known, you know, I... I I could, if I had pivoted earlier and done some more, you know, broadened the line and not had everything good. Like we still make tempeh. I still believe in tempeh. I love tempeh. And I think tempeh is poised to be the next kombucha really right now. I mean, it's going to rocket at some point and love, you know, like in the UK, the better nature people and some of the other uh, startup brands that are doing great stuff in the UK. So, but, you know, having a diverse uh, to diversify a little bit more um, earlier might have made the treehouse a little more flush. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, what do you do to keep yourself sane? Uh, well, people would argue whether I'm sane or not. So that's there's there is that. But I, uh, you know, have been really and especially lately in, enjoying just. Uh, these walks that I have been doing every day and gives me time to reflect. And then let's not uh, underestimate the power of a good glass of red wine in the evening at the end of a walk. So I can definitely agree with that. <laughs> if people want to know more about your journey, where can they buy the book and where can they connect with you if they're a vegan business out there? And they want to just say hello and talk to you. How can they do Yeah, that? so I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. Um, there's also um, just tofurky.com. You know, you can write to me there, you know, info at tofurky.com. And there's a way that I'll get emails there. The more information on the book is tofurky.com slash book. And it is on UK Amazon site. 
there's plenty of way to get in touch with me or just seth at tofurky.com is my email. So keep those cards and letters coming in. <laughs> and look, I, I just want to say thanks for everything you've done for us at Evolution and just uh, support along the way and just advice and uh, friendship. It's been it's been really great for us and yeah. we just like thank you for coming on the show and yeah and yeah. everything that you've done for the movement as well like you yeah. you know your, your people like you and like your what you've done with your company have just like paved the way like helped us be here. yeah helped us helped all of the startups now be here so um yeah thank you so much and um yeah yeah well thank you i mean you're blazing the trail into the future yourselves you're trailblazers so thank you for your trailblazing and keeping them all going and taking it places that uh, we never dreamed possible. So thank you. Thanks, Seth. Well, hopefully we can catch up with a, an actual beer in real life yeah. in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be fine. I'd take a, a, a Zoom cocktail too, so... We can oh, yeah, <laughs> happy hour. <laughs> happy hour. Hi, Plantpreneurs. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. It was produced by Feevolution and this series is hosted by myself, Damien Clarkson and my co-host, Judy Nadell. Before we go today, I have a quick favour to ask. At Feevolution, we believe in the power of business to positively impact the planet. This is why we created the podcast to help accelerate the good work you're all doing in making the world a better place. But we need your support to keep this community going. We've created a new plant-based business community over on Patreon for just a few pounds a month you can support the show in growing and helping us to shine a light on the plant-based businesses changing the world. So please head on over to www.patreon.com slash plant-based business and show your support for this podcast and the free content we create. Also, please remember to share this episode in your favourite social network. I can't tell you how much things like reviews and social shares help us and ambitions to tell the world about the growth of the plant-powered business movement. You can find us on Instagram at plant-based business underscore and at Feevolution underscore. Okay, keep safe and we'll see you all again soon.